Judges, chapter 19 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. These final five chapters of the book of Judges, we um, have these two different illustrations that uh, kind of describe the, you know, physically for us and the uh, condition of the children of Israel at the time uh, of the Judges. And this evening we come to the second of the two examples that have to do with a Levite and his concubine and all the ramifications of, of the actions that surrounded them. And I think in this three chapters we have maybe one of the most disgusting and degraded uh, sections of Scripture in all of the Bible. And we know that the Lord never, and it's no, I don't mean that as a poor reflection on Him anyway, because there's no poor reflection on Him. And I think that these passage, this passage is allowed to have the kind of strength that it has uh, because of the importance of the message that these three chapters are intended to build into our lives as, as God's people. The time of judges in Israel's history was a time where we're told that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're told that in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so God tells us that about the first example that we looked at last week in terms of the Danites and the idolatry and what Israel was uh, religiously at that time. But then the entire book closes out in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You'll notice that it does not say that everyone did what was wrong in their own eyes. That's a different sermon. These people are doing what they're doing, and they're doing it thinking that it's right, not thinking that it's wrong, committing terrible atrocities, and yet in their minds it was justifiable. So they thought they were doing right. In other words, they had not abandoned the concept of good and bad and right and wrong, they had simply rejected God's definitions of good and bad, right and wrong, and replaced it with their own. Now, in chapters 19 through 21, we will get to them tonight, we come to, as I said, the second of two examples that the book of Judges closes with that speak to the spiritual, as we saw last week, and then tonight to the moral depravity to which the children of Israel and the nation of Israel sunk during the time of the, the period of the judges. And last week we saw uh, in those chapters they emphasized that religion isn't safe if it chooses to operate independent of God's Word, independent of God's commands. And this second illustration that we look at tonight teaches us that morality is not safe independent of God's Word and His instruction and His commands. And thus, no society is safe 
that operates independent of God's definitions of good and bad and right and wrong. I mean, the level that man can fall to if he chooses to reject God's word, God's definitions of right and wrong, God's definitions of good and bad, and then to replace them with, it, with their own. It's appalling what we are capable of as human beings, fallen from that Garden of Eden. The chapters, I think, are intended to scare us about the potential for evil, for depravity that's in each and every one of us if we decide to change, put our definitions in the place of God's definitions for the world and in our own, our own lives. One of the reasons that I think that these illustrations and certainly this final one that we look at tonight is so significant for us is that we are living in a nation right now where what happened during the period of the judges is happening with light speed before our very eyes. God's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad are being replaced with man's definitions. And they don't call these new definitions bad or wrong, in their eyes they consider these new definitions to be superior to God's definitions of right and wrong and, and good and bad. And so they, uh, they, uh, this whole thing's happening, I mean, just almost daily as you keep up with the world that's going on around us. And, and I have to believe, number one, it's demonic, but then I think on some level they don't realize where it leads. They don't know what happens to a nation, what can happen to a world when you just jettison the biblical standard and then replace it with our own kind of pseudo-morality and, and, and it's pure pride and, it, and pure rebellion that does it. But the devil doesn't care what the origin is, is of it. He'll, he'll take advantage of it. The Bible says that there's a way that seems right unto a man. It's not right, but it seems right. But the end thereof is the way of death. If God's word, God's standard of right and wrong and good and bad is rejected, you end up with a society that just starts doing what it wants to do in its own eyes and that results in a world that you don't want to live in. And ultimately the Bible teaches that after the rapture of the church, man's new self-made morality will result in a Gentile world that will not only be willing to worship and follow the Antichrist, that's how enlightened they'll be, but they will join his program of killing millions of Jews and an uncountable number of people who become Christians during the Great Tribulation period and refuse to take the mark as well as uh, many others. That's how enlightened man will become. That's where all of this leads. That's how progressive man is today. It's a nice term, isn't it? It's a term for liberal today. The term liberal is a, a badge to get you sunk in the political realm. So you've got to find a new word, progressive. 
So this word's batted around and this new morality is a progressive reality. It moves the world into its new place and we get out from under, you know, God and all of the things that are holding us back, His definitions and, and, and all. And, and, but there's nothing that's progressive about this new morality. It's the same old, old morality and we're going to get a look at it in the book of Judges tonight. There is a future holocaust in man's history that will make every holocaust in the past in human history absolutely pale by comparison. Man is not smart enough. He is not moral enough. He is not enlightened enough to rule himself or to come up with his own definitions of right and wrong and good and bad. Chapter 19. And it came to pass in those days, when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. And he took for himself, Levite, he's supposed to be a religious man, an assistant to the priests, the sacrifices at the tabernacle, be comparable to what we would call a deacon in the church today. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, concubine was kind of a second-class uh, wife in, in those days. She was viewed legally as a wife, but kind of a second-class wife. You provided her with clothing. You provided her with food and shelter. She provided you with um, sexual involvement. She provided you, if your wife was barren and could not conceive, she would provide you with children. But her children, if there were children by a wife and then by a concubine, her children were considered second rate and, and no um, inheritance needed to be given to them. And so, uh, this if a man's wife was barren, he would oftentimes take a concubine in those days. It wasn't prescribed by God in his word, but he'd do that in order to establish a family. We know nothing about this man having a wife. He, instead of wanting to marry this woman, he marries her, so to speak, as a concubine. The Lord never endorsed concubinage in, in the Bible. There were, laws in the, there were laws in the law of Moses that governed it and restricted it when it occurred, but God never endorsed this kind of thing. It was to be one man, one woman for life. And so this Levite has no business at all having a concubine. Have a wife or have nothing. But his concubine played the harlot. She was unfaithful to him. And she went from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, down in the south of Israel, and was there for four whole months. And so she's been unfaithful to him. Perhaps uh, she fears for her safety as a result of it, so she runs home. Perhaps uh, she headed back down to the south to continue her harlotry from her father's house. We don't uh, really know, but she heads uh, back down to her father's house in Bethlehem, uh, just five miles or so outside of Jerusalem. So she's there for four months, and then apparently the husband, this Levite, uh, misses her on some kind of a level, so he desires to reconcile with her uh, 
I don't know how much he missed her. He waited four months, but some guys are a little thick to get through too. So he, but after four months, he said, boy, I, I kind of missed that gal. I don't know how it played out. So he arose and he went after her. And uh, here's his heart. He wanted reconciliation in the marriage to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And he had with him a servant and a couple of donkeys. And so he comes to the house. She brought him into her father's house. And so she's not entirely displeased to see him, doesn't slam the door in his face. And when the father of the young uh, woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. And so he's thrilled. Now, uh, nobody wants to have children coming back home under those circumstances. And so he sees the Levites showing up and uh, desiring reconciliation. He gets excited about it. Maybe the marriage can can be salvaged here. There's some hope for reconciliation. And so they came in and the father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained the Levite and he stayed with him for three days. And so they ate and they drank and they lodged there. It was just a big party, just food and drink and, and uh, 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 enjoying one another's uh, company for three days. And it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning and the Levite, he stood to depart. I'm, it's time for us to leave. It's early in the morning, about a day journey to get back home. And we don't want to get caught out in the night on anything. And so we're going to head out. But the young woman's father said to the son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread and afterward you go your way. Let's eat some more. And so they sat down and the two of them ate and they drank together. And then the young woman's father said to the man, Well, look at this. I mean, the day's all gone and, and uh, so no sense leaving. Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. No need to journey. We've had a great day. And when the man stood up to depart, his father-in-law urged him not to do so. And so he lodged there again. And then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, please refresh your heart. And so this is five days of this thing. And so they delayed until the afternoon and both of them ate. And so they ate the morning away. They ate until uh, mid-afternoon. And the man then stood up to depart, he and his concubine and his servant. His father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, look, the day's now drawing toward evening. It's, it's late in the day, probably about three-ish. Please spend the night. See the days coming to an end. Lodge here just another night. Let's make your heart merry for another evening. Tomorrow go on your way early so that you can get all of the way home. However, the Levite was not willing to spend that night. And so he arose and he departed and they came to opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem, with him were uh, the two saddled donkeys, his concubine was also with him. So late in the day, they make the journey from Bethlehem to Jabus. Jabus is ultimately going to be conquered by David, King David. It will become the capital of Israel. We know it today as modern-day uh, Jerusalem. But at this particular point in time, it was uh, under control of the Amorites. And so it was a, it was a pagan Gentile uh, city. And so um, as they were near to Jabus, the day far spent, the master servant said to his master, 
Come, please, let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, we will not turn aside there. He said, we will not turn aside. He did not say, we will not turn aside of there. <laughs> Lucy says stuff like that, but this guy didn't. We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. So being a Jew... He wasn't confident of his safety uh, in a Gentile city at night. And so it's a, nope, no consideration. We will not go in among the Jebusites. And so they travel five miles further uh, to the city of Gibeah. He said, we'll go on to Gibeah. And so he said to his servant, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and they went their way and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Bethlehem, or Benjamin rather. And they turned aside there to go in to lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square at the center of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. It's very, very common. The law of Moses had a lot to say about Jews showing hospitality not only to other Jews, but to all strangers. So what you would do, there were no motels, there were no hotels in those days, so you would come into a strange city, you're traveling the length of the land, you would go into the city square, you would sit down. That communicated to the whole city, I'm a stranger, I'm passing through, we need a place to stay tonight, and we're open to somebody's hospitality. In normal circumstances, somebody would have come up to them and invited them very readily into their house. They're going to get invited, but things are going to unravel pretty quickly after that. So the... uh, Uh, So there was that opportunity for someone within the city to show hospitality to them. But it wasn't always a one-sided thing. In in those days, you didn't have uh, television, you didn't have iPods, you didn't have uh, computers, you didn't have radios, you didn't have video games, you didn't have newspapers, you didn't have uh, these kinds of means of getting information. So it was kind of actually... A neat thing if you had the gift of hospitality and felt the person was safe to invite them into your house because they've just been traveling from someplace else in the world or somewhere else in the land and you could say, hey, what's going on out there? Well, over in Bethlehem this is happening and up in Dan this is happening and over here is happening in Syria and it was a way to uh, gain, you know, current kind of news. It was also kind of an educational experience. You didn't have books in those days. And so when someone would maybe be traveling through, they knew a subject better than you knew the subject that was interesting to you. You could enter into an evening-long conversation with them, learn what it is that they learned. And so it was, it was a pretty good thing that happened all the way around. So they come in, they plunk themselves down and just wait for somebody to uh, invite them in. Now it's very, very late in the day, and even though it's very late in the day, there's kind of an uneasy thing that's happening in the square that night, and that is nobody is inviting them into their house. And this is a good-sized city. So something's kind of fishy uh, here. Nobody's extending any hospitality uh, to them. And probably 
Everybody that lived in the city of Gibeah looked at these new people coming into the city and thought to themselves, Oh no, we know what this means for our city tonight, and we know what this will mean to us if we show hospitality uh, to these people, especially to this man. And so uh, they, the absence of hospitality, probably the, the perverted men of the city were already anticipating what the night would, would hold for them. And so they're sitting there waiting for some hospitality, and just then an old man came from his work in the field at evening, uh, who was also from the mountains of Ephraim, so he was kind of uh, not uh, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. Gibeah was a part of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a foreigner, a Jewish, but a foreigner, another part of another tribe. So he came in. This, they're from Ephraim. He was staying at Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised up his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square in the city, and the old man said, Where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, We're passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. And I went to Bethlehem in Judah. Now I'm going to the house of the Lord, but there's no one who will take me into his house. Even though we have enough straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant, and for the young man who is with your servant, there's no lack of anything. We're not looking for a handout. We're not looking for any food or water for us or the animals. We just would like to have uh, a roof over our head and be inside of some place safe. And the old man said, Peace be with you, shalom. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he knows that it's very dangerous. And so he brought him into his house gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet, and they ate and they drank. And as they were, uh, and, uh, as they were enjoying themselves, the food and the conversation and the educational back and forth and all, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, they surrounded the house and they beat on the door and they spoke to the master of the house, the old man saying, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him carnally. And so uh, they come to the door, they're threatening to break down uh, the, the door of the house and they demand that the man be turned over to them for the purpose of uh, homosexual gang rape. And so this reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah back in the book of Genesis. The big difference here is Sodom and Gomorrah were pagan cities. This is an Israelite city. And what unfolds in this, in this Israelite city here wasn't a, a bunch of perverts who kind of ran amok and and then the next day, everybody's just shocked and horrified at their conduct and how badly they've misrepresented the whole city. They came out into the streets openly. Apparently, this was a regular part of the nightlife in, in the city whenever kind of new blood uh, came through the city. So this is their demand. But the man, the master of the house... He went out to them and he said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly, seeing this man has come into my house. Do not commit this outrage. And so he tries to get them to turn away from their sin on the basis of two things. 
what they were contemplating, number one, was wicked, and number two, for them to break down the door and take this man out of his house it would have been a violation of Middle Eastern hospitality. Even to this day, I mean, if you had someone like Osama bin Laden or someone like that that you just look at and, you know, all have ideas about him, if he were to take you as an American, invite you into his tent, you'd, you would be in one of the safest places you could be if he invited you on the basis of hospitality. The, well, I might be going too far on that, but anyway. You, <laughs> I'll have to call him and see. But, but you, could, if you could have someone who was your just absolute enemy. I mean, they just hated you. But once they invited you into their tent, they would lay down their life in, to protect you. And, and so this was kind of that, that law of, of hospitality. And so he says, listen, he's come into my house. I have a responsibility to him. Do not commit this outrage. I wish he had stopped talking at that point. Verse 24, look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let them, me bring them out now. Humble them. Do with them as you please. But uh, to this man, do not do such a vile thing. And so he pleads with them and, and he offers his virgin daughter as a substitute. It's just monstrous. I mean, you just would not do that to, concerning any human being, much less your, your daughter, for a father to do that. Now, remember this. Just because it's recorded in the Scriptures doesn't mean that God liked any of this or He had any part in this. He's just giving us a, a glimpse at the, uh, at the level that even God's people had fallen to in their, in their new definitions. I mean, there's just nothing more you can say. It, it's, it's, it's disgusting. But the men wouldn't heed Him. And so the man, the Levite, this religious man, he took his concubine and brought her out to them. To save his own neck, he opens the door and shoves her out onto the porch. Now you put yourself in that place with that crowd and their mentality and they're just animals, they're just beasts. You can't, you can't do something worse to another human being. It's just terrible what we're reading. It, it's, it's intended to repulse us with the idea of waking us up to how dangerous it is to allow a culture or a society to replace God's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad with their own. Do you realize there are vast portions of this world tonight, it, all around the world tonight, that you would not want to be a man or a woman on the other side of a barred door and high walls. And you look at the most dangerous parts of the world today, and they are places that either, number one, 
have never had a Christian heritage, never had as a part of their national history or their cultural history exposure to God's definitions of right and wrong, or they once had them a long time ago, but they've now rejected them for their own. Women are in this place all the time around the world today. So he puts her out to save his own neck, brought her out to them, and they knew her and they abused her. They raped her all night long, all night long until morning. And then when the day began to break, sun started to rise, they let her go. And then the woman came as the day was dawning. She fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was and she collapsed there until it was light and when her we're going to find out in a moment that she died and then look at verse 27 you think if it can't get any worse and when her master the Levite her husband arose in the morning he slept through the night while his wife was outside there. How do you live with yourself? And he opened the doors of the house, and he went out to go his way, and there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands clutching the threshold. And he said to her, Get up and let us be going. That's about as hard as, as a person can be. Time to get up and let's get on our way. I mean, the guy is an absolute monster. And when she doesn't respond, he realizes that, that she's dead. And so he lifted her up onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. We are shocked. We are disgusted. We are angered by the account and it's intended to do that inside of each and every one of us. I mean, you just want to take a shower after something like this. But it's intended to drive home the lesson that it's terrible what people are capable of without the fear of God. And so when he entered his house upon returning home and taking the body there, he took out a knife laid hold of his dead concubine. He divided her into twelve pieces limb by limb and he sent parts of her body throughout all of the territory of Israel. A hand here, a hand there, a foot there, a foot here, a part of a leg, part of a leg, part of an arm, part of an arm, a head. This body starts to go out in all directions. Now in the ancient world, and we'll see it a little bit later when Saul goes to call all of the um, the entire nation of Israel to join him in a battle, what they would do as a part of uh, getting the attention of God's people that there's a crisis going on and let's all meet over in this city and address the crisis is that they would sacrifice an animal and send the portions of the animals in, in, in a different animal in different directions. But here he takes and he cuts up his concubine in order to accomplish an, an even more of a, uh, of a 
of awaking the nation up to what it is that is going on in its midst. And so it was that when it was that all who saw it, they saw these parts of the body show up in their parts of Israel, and they said, no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel this is what he, he said to them, his message, no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. Let's get together and we need to uh, talk about it. Chapter 20. And so all the children of Israel, they came out from Dan to Beersheba. Dan to Beersheba. Dan was in the far, farthest north of Israel. Beersheba was down nearly in the farthest south of, of Israel. Uh, so between the two of them, it's speaking about the fact that th- as these body parts went out, the children of Israel came from all the different tribes, the whole length of the land, and not only the land of Israel, but they came from the land of Gilead, and the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord, because, uh, before the Lord at Mizpah, because of their outrage over what it is that has come their way. And the leaders of all of the people, all of the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in an assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. 400,000 men came from every quarter in Israel. Soldiers came to address whatever all these pieces of a woman's body meant as it relates to to Israel and some atrocity there. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah and then the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked thing happen? And so Gibeah was a city that was a Benjamite city. They were uh, Benjamites. They were of the tribe of Benjamin. And so here these other 11 tribes, they approach the tribe of Benjamin and, and they uh, confront them over, you know, what in the world uh, happened here. Their, their question, or really, a, a, actually, I'm a little ahead of myself, they ask this Levite what happened in the situation. So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah arose against me. They surrounded the the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. This is revisionist history. I mean, he. Le- this is why you got to have everybody involved in a room to get the facts. So, I mean, it's like he's totally innocent in the whole. Uh, thing. So this is what happened. She died. And so I took hold of my concubine. I cut her in pieces. I sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, he said, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice, your counsel here and now. We need to do something about this. What are we going to do? And so all of the people arose as one man And they said, none of us will go to his tent. None of us will turn back to our own homes. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And we will take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, a thousand out of every ten thousand to make provisions for the people 
that when they come to Gibeah in Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. And so all the men of Israel were gathered together against the city, united together as one man. So they begin to prepare for war. You need provisions. They're preparing for a long uh, fight against the city of Gibeah. And so they commit 10% of their military force here to uh, accumulating or gathering together uh, food supplies and that kind of things that will be needed for a sustained military operation. And then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what is this wickedness that has occurred among you? So before they go to war, they do what anyone ought to do, and that is they demand an explanation for what it is that happened. And so they went to the men of Benjamin, and they said, what in the world is going on here? And what is the explanation uh, uh, related to it? Now, therefore, here's their demand, deliver up the men, the perverted men who were in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. So you have a issue here where innocent blood has been shed, a murder of a, a terrible murder of a woman, and because of that there's a blood guiltiness according to the law of Moses upon the whole nation. They had a, a national responsibility to find out who was guilty related to this crime and then execute them. This was a capital crime of murder, then execute them for their uh, 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 murder. And so this is what they're wanting to do to keep the law of Moses. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. They, they disregarded this righteous demand of the other 11 tribes. And instead, the children of Be Benjamin, they gathered together from all of their cities to the city of Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And so rather than turning Gibeah over and uh, to be dealt with justly for their sin, they gather at the scene of the crime at, at Gibeah and they uh, uh, were told in verse 15 the size of the military force that they assembled. And from their cities at that time, the children of, Israel, uh, of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword beside the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men in the city. And among all the, this people were 700 select men, who, special ops people, who were left-handed. And every one of these left-handed men could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Now that, that, that was to, to sling a projectile you say, oh, man, I missed. You missed. It was right in the middle of his forehead. It was just one hair off. And that's how skilled these guys were with, with, with the stone. And now besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of them were men of war. And so you have 3,300 men willing to go against a force of, of 400,000 the tribe of Benjamin is getting in the middle of something between God and the inhabitants of Gibeah that was none of their business. And they're going to pay a big price for it. Be careful not 
to defend or to align with the unrighteous in their guilt. You cannot make a wrong right by military force. You can't do it. And here they are, they take the side of evil, and it's going to draw them into a war that God did not intend them to be drawn into. Never ever take the side of evil in this world, or wickedness, or unrighteousness in this world. Don't defend it, don't align with it, because you will pull yourself into a war that is going on between that person or that group of people and God. And God always wins, ultimately. One of my favorite Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, because it's so graphic, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 17, He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. You just got to lift a dog by the ears just once. And you learn never to do that again. Why? Because you get bit. And they're going to get bit because they're, they're getting involved on the wrong side of a fight. They got no business being in the middle of. And so they said, nope, these are our brethren. This is our tribe. And, and uh, you can't just be coming in here telling us what you're going to do with Benjamites. We're all Benjamites and we're going to protect them. And they're going to get fed their lunch in just a few verses. And so then the children of Israel arose and they went up to the house of God to inquire of God. And they said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah first. And so the children of Israel rose in the morning. They encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. And then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah. And on that day they cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. Now, the, the 11 tribes that have gathered to fight against the Benjamites, they're in the Benjamites' backyard. Uh, they know the terrain. It's difficult terrain in southern Israel there, hilly terrain, but they've walked into somebody's backyard. They know every nook, every cranny, every ambush place, so they go in, think this is going to be easy, and it isn't easy, and 22,000 of them die uh, in, in, the, in the battle. And, and so it's, uh, apparently they attacked a very strong defensive uh, position there. And the people, that is the men of Israel, they encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. And then the children of Israel went up. They wept before the Lord because of the defeat until evening. They asked counsel of the Lord saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against him. And so on the second day, the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin. And Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down uh, to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. And all these drew the sword. So another 18,000 dead. Well, you say that's progress. 22 to 18. Uh, not if you're out on, on the battle 
field. So this, here they are, they're trying to do a righteous thing, trying to do what was right by God's word and all, and, and yet they've suffered a loss of 40,000 men in two days, and it raises the question, why? I won't answer it, but it raises the question, why? Legitimately, as we would read it. It's interesting in this passage, sometimes the Lord does things and he very readily explains the reasons for his actions or his inaction. We're not left to guess related to it. So it isn't a case of that, that God doesn't know why it all happened. Uh, it's a case of he does know why it happened, but he hasn't chosen to reveal it in, in his, his word. I think that it is important for us to realize that sometimes you can be in God's will and sometimes you can be on the right side of things and still suffer losses. I'm inclined to believe that because of the general apostasy of all of the 12 tribes at this time in Israel's history, that God desired to chasten all of them in some measure for their wickedness and in kind of expressing his uh, displeasure with all of them while saving uh, the great uh, greatness of his, his wrath uh, for the tribe of, of Benjamin. One of the things that was helpful for me to hear uh, very early in my Christian walk, and I heard Pastor Chuck Smith say it, and related to different sections of Scripture, that sometimes you come to them and they're a little bit confusing to us. Um, he mentioned that he has a file in his mind that is called the more information needed file. And I think that sooner or later in all of our lives you have to open up one of those files. And this is kind of one of those places where you look and say, I don't understand what is happening here. Evidently, I don't need to understand it or God would give us revelation of what he was thinking in all of this. But when we are faced with what we don't know, it's good for us to fall back on what we do know. And what we do know concerning God's ways and his uh, dealings is that his ways are far higher than ours, far greater and better than ours. And, uh, and then maybe one day, if we even care in heaven, we'll have some clarity uh, related to it. And so um, this is one of those more information needed uh, articles that we can put in that file in our minds. Well, of course, all of this created great confusion for them and desperation. And so then all of the children of Israel, uh, that is all the people, they went up and they came to the house of God and they wept. And they sat there before the Lord and they fasted that day until evening and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. I think all of us understand it, don't we? And so the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The ark of the covenant of God was there in those days and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days saying, Shall we go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin or shall I cease? And the Lord said, A final time, go up, and then with a promise of success, for tomorrow I will deliver them into 
your hand. And so Israel set men in ambush all around the city of Gibeah, and the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day, and they put themselves in battle array against Gibeah as at other times. And so the children of Israel went out against, uh, the children of Benjamin went out against the people. They were drawn away from the city, and they began to strike down and kill some of the people of the children of Israel as they had at other times. So they get filled with self-confidence. They think it's going to be another bloodbath in their favor the third day. In the highways, uh, one of which goes to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the field, about 30 men of Israel. So the slaughter has begun in their eyes. And then the men of children of Benjamin said, They're defeated before us, is it the first? But the children of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city into the highways. So they were setting up an ambush. And so all the men of Israel rose from their place, put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. And then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba. And 10,000 select men from all Israel, they came against Gibeah. Now the military force has been drawn, the major part of the military force drawn out of the city. Now they begin to attack it. The battle was fierce. Uh, They were wicked perverts, uh, but they could fight. Uh, And that's the way it is sometimes. But the Benjamites did not know uh, that disaster was upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. And so the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. The men in ambush spread out and they struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise from the city once the city had been taken. And then upon seeing that, the men of Israel would then turn in the battle against those that they were fleeing from. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they had said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and there was the whole city going up in smoke, to heaven. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. And therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel just started to flee in battle in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities they destroyed in their midst. And they surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah toward the east. And 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. And then they turned and they fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. And they cut down 5,000 of them in the highways. And then they pursued them relentlessly up to Gidom. And they killed 2,000 of them so that all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. 
and they stayed there at that rock for four months. The entire tribe is destroyed. The men of the entire tribe of of Benjamin is destroyed except for 600 of them that were able to get to this rocky region and and flee and secure themselves. I mean, it's virtually the, the, the I mean, you get the destruction really, virtually the extinction of one of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, happened in this civil war. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and they struck them down with the edge of the sword. And so now enraged in the battle, their losses in the first two days, the fact that they've had to even fight this battle at all. I mean, there's just a bloodlust that's been uh, aroused in them now. And now they're not content to merely kill the men that have come out of the tribe of Benjamin to fight against them. They now begin to move into the cities and just begin to kill everything that's alive. Again, this is not God's doing. God did not... Uh, God wanted them to defeat the, the men of Benjamin. He did not call them to do this. It simply recorded that they did it in the Word of God. And so they turned back against the children of Benjamin struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found, and they also set uh, fire to all the cities that they came to. And so they just laid waste to the entire land. Chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah and concerning this whole thing. And they said, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as wife. So before they went into battle, they, they decided that even before they would defeat them in battle, one of the consequences of them defending this wickedness of the people of Gibeah is they said, we will not intermarry any longer with the men of, of Benjamin. And so that was a vow that they had made. God did not tell them to make that vow that's a vow that, that they, they made. It was an unnecessary uh, vow. And then the people came to the house of God. They remained there before God until evening. And then uh, they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. So they've had this tremendous victory, but it's a bittersweet victory. And here's the reason why, verse 3. They said, O Lord God of Israel... Why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? And so they realize because of this battle, we, it has led to the virtual extinction of one of the twelve tribes. I mean, they looked at it and, they, and in essence they said, uh, you know, the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel. We could be talking tonight about the eleven tribes of Israel as a result of of the losses that they had taken in the battle. So this hit them. They, they, they didn't like the fact that they had, uh, had to do this. And so is there a way of preserving uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the tribe of Benjamin? They got kind of a, a double problem here in that not only in the battle was just 600 Benjamites uh, left alive, but now by virtue of their vow that they would not give any of their daughters to marry these 600 survivors. These 600 survivors, if they were going to marry, would have to marry Gentiles. 
and thus the tribe would then be absorbed into the Gentile world. So you had the military loss, you had the vow now working to the complete extinction of one of the tribes. This is what they're coming to face with. And so it was on the next morning that the people rose early, they built an altar there, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? Who didn't come to fight um, with us in uh, uh, against the people of Benjamin? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone or any village that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And so um, they, uh, they, that was the, the, the vow that had, uh, another vow that had been made. And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother, and they said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives? And so they, they want to uh, kind of fix this problem that they've got. The only way that this tribe can continue is to find wives for them, but we vowed that we wouldn't give Jewish wives. What shall we do for wives for those who remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives? So they then devise a plan for getting around their vow. <laughs> So they make a vow, and um, then they start to look for a loophole. They're tremendous lawyers on, on this kind of thing. And so they said, what one of, uh, is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? And in fact, no one had come from the camp to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead, the city of Jabesh-Gilead, to the assembly. And when the people were counted, indeed, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead had answered the call to come to battle against the Benjamites. And so the congregation sent out there to Jabesh-Gilead 12,000 of their most valiant men, and they commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and the children. Again, God isn't any part of any of this. And this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male, every woman who has known a man intimately, a non-virgin. And so they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, following the slaughter, 400 young virgins who were uh, marriable and that had not known a man intimately. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon, and they announced peace to them. And so Benjamin came back at that time. And they gave them the 400 woman, women who they had saved alive from the women of Jabesh Gilead. And yet they still didn't have enough for all of them. There's 200 guys that didn't have uh, a wife. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. And so, all right, they do this to get 400. And now they've got to come up with another plan for how to get wives for the other uh, two, uh, 200, and this is their plan. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who remain, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives 
from our daughters. For the children of Israel have sworn an oath saying, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. So what are we going to do? We've made a vow that we will not give any of our daughters to any of these men as a wife. And then they said, In fact, there's a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem. So they had this yearly feast that would go on and all the people would gather from uh, the surrounding tribes and and, uh, south of uh, Lebanon. And therefore they instructed the children of Benjamin saying, listen, when they have this big feast and everything, you go lie in wait in the vineyards and uh, hide in there and watch the whole celebration, all the dancing, all the everything. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dance, go get yourself a gal. (laughs) Then come out of the vineyards and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh and then go to the land of Benjamin. And so the idea is we can't, we made a promise that we wouldn't give our daughters to them, but that doesn't mean they can't take our daughters. So this is the loophole they, they, they get. It's very comforting, isn't it, women? And then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us and protest, say, what are you doing pulling 200 of our daughters that we've raised from, you know, infancy and allowed these men to just pull them off in the middle of a dance to make wives of them that will say, be kind to them for our sake. Because, they, uh, because we did not take a wife for any of them in war, for it is not as though you've given the women to them at this time, making yourself guilty of an oath. So they're going to tell the brothers and the fathers who protest, listen, there's a big difference between giving and taking. You didn't give, they took. Such comfort. And the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. And then they went and they returned to their inheritance and they rebuilt the cities and they dwelt in them. And so they went back home to build for their future. And so the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And then here is the final statement that explains all of the craziness of the book of Judges. And in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let me close with a couple of lessons. Again, these three chapters instruct us that morality and thus society is not safe independent of God's commandments and His Word and His instruction. A growing number of people in our nation just insanely believe that everyone did what was right in their own eyes can make a better nation than everyone did what was right in the eyes of God. But the book of Judges, and one of the reasons the book is in the book, is to teach us 
that it can not. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes produces a nation and a society and a world that is very, very scary to live in. I think that it's very important for us as kind of a take-home lesson from this passage, the importance for us as Christians to be committed to a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in our own lives and a knowledge of His Word, to be unflinchingly merciless with any compromise in our lives as Christians. The elevation of any even small area in our lives where we would look and say, I'm going to compromise God's standard in this area because I think I'm smarter than what he says about this issue. It is so important for us to be salt and light at this time in human history. Jesus said we're the salt of the earth. He said that we're the light of the world. We need to have a life that exposes evil in all the places that God brings, puts us in life. We need to have a life that arrests the advancement of evil and wickedness and compromise and redefinition in the places that God has put us to live uh, for the Lord. I just want us to allow this to really you know, search us in, in that area. We're living today in a world that is very much just a thick moral fog. And we have got to, as God's people, reject the new definitions, no matter how appealing they might be to our flesh. Commit to the Word of God and strictly obeying the Word of God for God's glory in this world through our lives, for our own good in the middle of insanity and a greater insanity to come if there's no revival in this country and in this world. But not only for God's glory and our own good, but for the good of the world that we live in, even though it won't be appreciated, even though we will be viewed as the problem, we still have a responsibility to be salt and light in the midst of it. And so sometimes you can do that, and I mean the world gets so, is so thankless to sometimes live a godly life, and there's persecution that, and isolation that is a result of it and all of these kinds of things. Jesus faced the same thing. And so here is this world that doesn't appreciate what we are, the influence that we're trying to be, but God appreciates it. And many of those that don't appreciate it on one day will one day be saved. And then, then they will appreciate it. And one of the reasons that it's important to live that quiet, humble, simple life of obedience for God's glory in the midst of wickedness is because you never know what in the world he might do with it. Because next week we come to the third 
illustration in the Bible of what life was like during the period of Judges in the land of Israel. And it is the book of Ruth. And we get to see in the book of Ruth how a small group of people in the midst of this depravity lived for God and walked with God. And God worked in and through those people to ultimately bring into Jewish history the greatest king that Israel ever had, King David. When things get dark, when things get supremely wicked, God isn't overwhelmed by it. And the excitement that is a part of our lives as Christians to say, God, I can't change this tidal wave of redefinition and the expansion of wickedness that's going on all around me, but I can give you my life to use. I can obey you. And then the book of Ruth gives us the hope that God will take out of just simple, obscure obedience of God's people something great that changes the entire history of the nation of Israel. But we don't have control over all those things. God has control of those things. But we do have the privilege of offering our lives to Him in that way and then to see what in the world He might do through us at our moment in human history. Let's stand together and we'll pray.